Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, Taking the Stand. It was a power struggle a lot of the time. Organizers of last winter's trucker convoy shared their side of the story and exposed cracks in the protest. Also, the Ontario Premier continues to fight a summons to testify and takes heat for another matter entirely. Collective bargaining negotiations are sometimes difficult, but it has to happen. Invoking the notwithstanding clause to force a contract on education workers in Ontario. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Well, for the first time since the Rouleau inquiry began, the Commission heard from protest organizers today, outlining their reasons for coming together, addressing allegations of racism and hate, and a death threat made against the Deputy Prime Minister. Have you seen this email before? I have not, no. It's sent on Wednesday, February 16th at 1.23 p.m. to Christia Freeland, MP, and it reads, I declare war on all the Canadian government for lying about COVID-19. Christia Freeland will get a bullet to the head. Prepare to feel our wrath. Were you aware, sir, that on February 16th, the same day, the OPP apprehended someone in Ottawa who was wearing body armor and carrying a large knife along with other knives, a sword and machetes that were seized out of his truck. I was not aware of that, no. With more, we are now joined by two journalists who are covering the commission. Tonda McCharles is parliamentary reporter for the Toronto Star. Christopher Nardi is parliamentary reporter for the National Post. Hello to the two of you. Hi, Michael. Hi, Michael. Listen, Tonda, I, you know, I'm going to begin with you because at the time of the protest, we were pointing out that there were many people with different intentions coming to the Hill to join uh, what was happening. And we seem to get a real sense of that today. Uh, talk to us about the testimony that we heard from Chris Barber. Well, we've actually heard from two different people who've come from two different groups, both of whom are essentially arguing that this was not a monolithic protest, that there were different groups, competing factions, competing goals. Uh, Chris Barber, the trucker from Saskatchewan who came, uh, was one of the early arrivals, said essentially that, look, he was uh, taught... Yes, he touched base and organized to come with a bunch of these people, but didn't agree with the goal of, as stated by a memorandum by the Canada Unity, Canada Unity faction, that they wanted to overthrow the government. Barber said it was all about anti-trucker mandates for him. He, he, he wanted the vaccine mandates lifted for cross-border truckers, and that's all it was about. But we got a picture of internally what the chaos was in the streets in terms of, you know, the disorganization amongst everybody. Um, and I think also, though, you also saw them uh, both 
Steve, uh, Chris Barber and the later witness Steve Charlon, who would testify this afternoon, that they're portraying it also as all about peace and love and harmony and how there was no violence and there was no threat and everything like that, downplaying uh, the, the concerns that the police have expressed in this inquiry to date. So yes, there was a perception of different agendas and different goals on the police and intelligence side of things, but also within the convoy movement itself, different goals, competing agendas, and a split even between, um, look, they dis basically disagreed that they had anything to do with each other in terms of organizing the Windsor protest, the Coots Alberta protest, the Emerson protest. They basically disassociated themselves, saying those were organic movements that sprang up as well. Mm -hmm. so, so, Christopher, what do you make of it then? Because uh, as we, as Tonda was saying, here we have uh, two competing groups who say that they came separately, they had different objectives, none of which apparently was, was meant to incite any type of violence. What do you make of what you heard uh, from the two today so far? Well, you get the sense that you're almost listening to descriptions today of completely different and unrelated events to what we've heard from police testimony, from City of Ottawa testimony, and even from the residents of Ottawa testimony that we heard on day one of the commission, right? Uh, Tonda said it well, you know, we've heard today of peace and love, and we were here to protest mandates. There was no violence. Steve Charlin said he saw no intimidation, no harassment, no violence. In fact, he blamed the violence on police squarely only. Uh, Barber said we're coming, dear, and coming down here and we tried to enforce this peacefulness that we did nothing wrong we didn't even know that the demonstration was illegal he said whereas for the last week or so we've heard a ton of descriptions from intelligence reports from the OPP from the Ottawa Police Service from former police chief uh, Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly that this was a dangerous kind of assaultive was I think the word that Peter Slowly used environment where there was constant harassment there was constant intimidation where people did not feel safe being in the streets of their own city, right? So we're actually kind of getting this completely different perspective from the convoy organizers that does not, uh, let's say, you know, lie. There's really no way to reconcile it with what we've heard in the last few weeks. So it'll be interesting to see how the protest organizers today, but also in the next few days as we hear more of them, explain their perspective, right? And, and kind of demonstrate it, because we've seen the proof of how it was disruptive at the time. Now we need to see how they they consider that it went down so well and how they are the victims of police and, and pol political overreaction. Well, absolutely. There there seems to be this, this disconnect between the, the earlier testimony we heard at the very start of this inquiry versus what we've been hearing today. And it was also, I guess, interesting is the word here, you know, in the way Barber uh, distanced himself when he was asked about a death threat made against the deputy prime minister. Tonda, can you shed some light on, on that exchange, uh, exactly who made the threat, why it was raised in the commission today? Mm -hmm. It came up in the context of the convoy organizers themselves were putting out what they called their own intelligence reports on what was happening, updates to participants in the protest of what was going on, a scan of both the media and the environment and the cops and everything they knew. And in that, you know, there was a, one of the government lawyers put to um, to Chris Barber, you know, the idea that, look, some of these um, pamphlets, these updates, were pumping up conspiracy theories about Christia Freeland being connected with a globalist conspiracy at the World Economic Forum. and. Uh, 
Barber was at that point, you know, attempting to say, look, it was all peace and love, peaceful demonstration, no violence. And the government lawyer points out, well, look, the very day that you guys put out this update to your participants and every uh, and, and convoy supporters, Christia Freeland actually got a quite graphic death threat against her, a threat by email directly to her that, you know, come, you know, in day, within days she was going to get, get a bullet put in her head. And very violent threat against the deputy prime minister. Barber said he had no idea of that. That was the first he heard of it. He distanced himself from any of the rhetoric that others might have used. He distanced himself from the goals of some of his fellow convoyers. Uh, and yet the Government of Canada lawyer was attempting to say, look, you might say that you weren't supportive of that, but if you fan the flames, don't you admit you have no control over the other participants? And Barber was forced to admit, yes, they didn't really have control. He tried to keep emergency lanes open in this protest he failed. Uh, I think, you know, the, 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 the government uh, and the inquiry lawyers are trying to bring out, draw out, that no matter what their claims, the fact of the matter was they had no control over the various factions. And that, and that became, I think, an issue for the government as they weighed what needed to be done to control this thing. Mm -hmm. Now, this is, of course, just, just one piece, uh, today's testimony of what's meant to happen this week. So I want to talk about mm -hmm. significance now. And Tonda, I'll, I'll stay with you right now about the significance of this week's testimony, who you're actually watching out for, because really, this is just the start. Yeah, it's the start. We'll hear from uh, a total of three witnesses today. But uh, look, the whole week is expected to be spent on various individuals who are leading the protest. The significance is this. Well, not only is it a huge contrast from the legalese and the police jargon that we've heard to date, it also sets the scene for what was in the mind of uh, the provincial officials and the federal officials when it came to weighing how, what legislative tools they had to deal with the blockades. I think what you're hearing today and this all this week will be a picture from inside the convoy, which stands in stark contrast to the picture we've been given, not just in testimony today, but also in documents. And you know, the documents are very telling. We're getting a look inside this whole scene that we really didn't have. And, you know, I just, I, I, continue to sort of be surprised and amazed the extent to which there were concerns and fears around this um, and attempts to document what exactly was going on and who was involved. Mm -hmm. Christopher, what would you say in terms of significance and who you might be watching out for this week? Well, I'll be looking forward to seeing uh, another convoy organizer, Tamara Litch, uh, who will be coming up in the next few days. We know amongst many responsibilities that she had, she was the one who received that first $1 million, uh, you know, basically check from the fundraisers that they had, the crowdfunding fundraisers. We'll find out a little bit more probably about the financial aspect behind the convoy and possibly where that money came from, right? We've heard a lot of allegations mm -hmm. of foreign interference, foreign funding, notably from the United States. Um, and possibly, you know, eventually we'll find out what intelligence services thought about that but hopefully she'll be able to shed some light on where that money came from what happened to it where it went and how it was distributed ultimately right and then other uh, thing that I'll be looking forward to is just understanding what was going on within the protesters when there were negotiations going on with police to clear out parts of uh, downtown Ottawa right we've heard that police were kind of tearing themselves up you know amongst themselves on how much they should negotiate with the groups that were here on Coventry Road on Wellington Street and in the neighborhoods 
of downtown Ottawa. Uh, we'll find out, you know, how did those negotiations go? Why did they seem to fall through? Were they able to even get everyone, all the truckers on board? It doesn't sound like it. There was that group, the Farfadas, that uh, Steve Charlin leads, uh, that wanted nothing to do, for example, with negotiations, is what we've heard. So we'll get a better sense of how organized or disorganized they were internally to the point that, you know, were negotiations with police even feasible or was that basically, you know, a dead dead end from the start for police and ultimately just, um, let's say, an unnecessary delay in ending the blockades here in Ottawa? Well, from the very start, we heard uh, Justice Rouleau said there was a lot of information to get through in a short amount of time. So to help put today's testimony in context, thank you to the two of you. Really appreciate the time. That is Tana McCharles and Christopher Nardi. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Well, today is the 14th day of testimony at the Rouleau Inquiry, and as we watch protest organizers take the stand, two people who we may never hear from are the Ontario Premier and his deputy. Both continue to fight a summons to appear before the commission, and on this very same day, the Ford government is also coming under fire for aiming to use the notwithstanding clause to force education workers into a contract. The Prime Minister was asked about the notwithstanding clause. Take a listen. Using the notwithstanding clause to suspend workers' rights um, is wrong. I know that, that collective bargaining negotiations are sometimes difficult, but it has to happen. It has to be done in a respectful, thoughtful way at the bargaining table. Uh, the suspension of people's rights is something that you should only do in the most exceptional circumstances. And I really hope that uh, all politicians call out the uh, overuse of the notwithstanding clause to suspend people's rights and freedoms. So to talk about both of those matters, we're now joined by two members of Ontario's provincial parliament. John Fraser is Ontario's interim liberal leader and the MPP for the riding of Ottawa South. Chandra Pasma is the Ontario NDP education critic and the MPP for the riding of Ottawa West Nepean. Welcome to the two of you. Thanks for having us, Michael. Now, before we begin, I should point out that we did ask the Ford government to, to make someone available for today's panel, but we were told no one was available. Still a lot to discuss today. Uh, so, Mr. Fraser, I'm going to get you to start us off. And really, the matter, the first matter for us to discuss is the Ontario Premier's decision to fight the summons to appear before the Rouleau inquiry. Uh, Premier Ford and Minister Jones are citing parliamentary privilege in their fight to quash the summons. Uh, Mr. Fraser, what do you make of that argument? Well, um, it's it's wrong not to testify, and you know maybe the premier will win in court today, but he's going to continue to lose in the court of public opinion. You know, I can think of three premiers: premiers Harris, Wynn, and McGinty, all who, when they were called to testify before a committee or court, went because they understood that that was part of the job, that building trust uh, with the people who elected them or people who represent who they represent uh, was important. And last February. The citizens of Ottawa endured uh, two weeks of inaction uh, by this Premier, Premier Ford. That was wrong. Uh, he should testify and, quite frankly, should offer uh, an apology. Just simply say why he didn't do anything. And uh, I think it would be easy enough to say it was a bad decision. I think we all know that. Um, and that uh, he needs to do better. We'll get a bit more into those details in a moment. I, I, I do want to point out that the, the judge in this matter says that an opinion should be released uh, sometime next week. But Ms. Pasma, uh, what are your thoughts? What do you make of the argument being made about parliamentary privilege? 
I think it's absolute baloney. The residents of Ottawa didn't get to claim any kind of privilege that allowed them to uh, replace the income that they lost for 28 days when they weren't able to go to work. There was no parliamentary privilege to protect the families of kids with cancer who had to miss their chemo and radiation appointments at CHEO. Uh, there was none of this kind of protection for seniors and people living with disabilities who were trapped in their own homes. Uh, people who had to put up with incessant honking and diesel fumes for 28 days. The residents of Ottawa had to live this for 28 days. The least that the Premier can do is give up one day to come to Ottawa and explain why. Explain why he didn't act sooner. Explain why he didn't use the tools that he had at hand. And explain why he allowed this to happen for so long in our city. Now, are either of you concerned at all about a precedent being set here? Because that is the argument being made uh, in court by the government lawyer. This idea that if this sets, if this is set as a precedent that he is compelled to testify before the commission, then it puts in, in into jeopardy the relation between governments and the courts down the road. Uh, Mr. Fraser, what do you say to that? Yeah, no, I, I think that. Uh... I think that not, uh, I was essentially the premier shirking his responsibility, trying to use privilege as a shield uh, in this matter. Um, it could set a precedent. Uh, it is going in the wrong direction. And as I said earlier, you know, three previous premiers of you know, uh, conservative and liberal strikes, when they were called to testify for a committee or go to court, they went because they knew it was the right thing to do. And you know, it, you know, it, what the, I don't, the premier fails to understand is this is, uh, you know, the court of public opinion, especially in Ottawa, is why aren't you just being open and transparent with us about it? I mean, other other leaders are essentially appearing and saying, and I know that they feel, you know, that they could have done more. And I, you think you'll see that through the testimony. And so, you know, I, I do, I am concerned about being president. Um, and, uh, you know, the premier just should simply drop uh, the court action and okay. testify. Okay. Uh, listen, I, I need to move on to the second topic now because, of course, as we watch what is happening with this fight against the summons, the other big story today having to do with Doug Ford and his government is the invocation of the notwithstanding clause should they force education workers uh, into a contract. Uh, Ms. Pasma, you oppose this. Why? Well, I think the use of the notwithstanding contract to bully the lowest paid education workers in Ontario is absolutely chilling. These are people who have come in and supported our kids day in and day out, including throughout the last two years of the pandemic. When schools were closed, QB education workers were still coming in because that's the kind of work that they do. Uh, cleaning our schools, supporting our kids with some of the greatest accessibility needs. They've been really clear that their backs are against the wall, that they can't afford to keep they love. A quarter of them are already cutting back on food or using food banks. Half of them have to work two or three jobs just to make ends meet. So they've come to the government to exercise their charter protected right to say, please, can you negotiate a fair deal with us that pays us a wage that allows us to do this work? And instead of coming to the negotiating table and bargaining that fair deal, the Ford government is, is dropping a nuclear bomb on their charter rights and saying, if you cross us and you don't do what we want, we're going to take away your rights entirely. I think that's a dangerous precedent for the for the whole province. Now, to hear it from the government side, Mr. Fraser, the, the two sides really are far apart when it comes to education workers. And, and to be clear for people at home, this, this is not teachers, but all the many others who are involved in the province's education system, that they really are far, far apart between the demands. With, with workers asking for something like an 11% increase, the government offering a one point. Uh, 
0.25% increase, roughly those numbers. What do you make of that divide and this response to that divide? Well, the government's being intransigent. You know, this legislation uh, in, that they put forward this week, it didn't happen over the weekend or even last week. It would have taken at least two weeks to write. So the government's intention, uh, I think, was to use the lowest paid workers in our education system. And we're talking about EAs, people who take care and help and support the most uh, vulnerable children with exceptional needs. And they do that because they love kids and they're trying to help them. And this government um, I, needs to be serious, the poor government needs to be serious about negotiating uh, a contract that provides not a fair wage, as much as a living wage. And, uh, and the use of the notwithstanding clause for a purpose other than it was intended, which was to, to resolve disputes between the province and the federal government, is wrong. The prime minister's right. It's a misuse. It's not there to settle uh, contract disputes uh, with workers. Mm -hmm. I have less than two, two minutes left, but I do want to ask both of you, so uh, keep your answer short, if you will. Uh, CUPE is the union that represents these education workers. Uh, they say that they will still walk off the job on Friday, uh, and this is despite the fact that under uh, this legislation, each worker could be fined upwards of $4,000 a day for walking off the job. Is that an advisable tactic? Uh, Ms. Pasma, what do you think? Well, what I think it shows is how desperate these workers are and the fact that they really are up against a wall here. They can't continue to do this work if they don't get the uh, wage increase that they're asking for. And I think, you know, the minister holds all the cards here. There's two and a half days. He could still come to the table at any point and negotiate a fair deal that gets us out of this situation without any disruptions to our kids' school year. Mr. Fraser? Look, uh, there's no doubt parents want their kids uh, to be in school. We all do. And the workers, the educational workers, they want to be at work. There's a way to solve this. And the good news is this government's in surplus. The bad news is they're in a deficit of goodwill with the people who are responsible for making sure our schools are welcoming and safe environments for learning. Well, we are watching both the court case and the negotiations with this contract and what happens in the Ontario legislature all very closely. Uh, Mr. Fraser, Ms. Pasma, thank you for the time. Thank you. Thank you. Now, as I said right off top, no Conservative member of Provincial Parliament was able to make it for today's panel. But we did hear from the Ontario Premier earlier today. Take a listen to Doug Ford. They talk about 54,000 workers. We're talking over a million parents that would take work off because you want to feather the nest of the heads of the union. That's unacceptable. We want to take care of the frontline, hardworking, educational workers, and we'll always have their backs. But you know something? We, we are going to be feathering the nest of the head of the QP. Again, we differentiate between labour and labour leadership. They, I think the Labour needs to find new Labour leadership. The Federal Immigration Minister unveiled an ambitious target today, announcing Canada will open its doors to half a million new immigrants each year by 2025. It is a goal that John Fraser says is necessary for economic prosperity. Take a listen. Canada needs more people. Canadians understand the need to continue to grow our population if we're going to meet the needs of the labour force, if we're going to rebalance a uh, worrying demographic trend, and if we're going to continue to reunite families and to do right by the world and make good in our commitments to support some of the world's most vulnerable. 
You know, Canada has experienced one of the strongest economic recoveries from the COVID-19 pandemic. We've recovered significantly more jobs than were lost during the pandemic. Our GDP levels are well in excess of pre-pandemic levels. A couple of months ago, we hit the lowest rate of unemployment in the history of Canada. Uh, yet still, there's challenges. Life's been getting more expensive. It's driving up the cost of building projects. And it's hard to find workers. Uh, the reality is you don't need to uh, dig into the stats to understand that there was a, a million jobs available in the Canadian economy. You need to walk down Main Street of any community in Canada. You're going to see help wanted signs in the window. This is the economic context that we're living through right now. Joining us now is Ian Reeve. He is the Associate Director for Immigration Research at the Conference Board of Canada. Mr. Reeve, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So an economic necessity is basically the argument that we're hearing from the minister. Uh, but how true is that statement? What would the consequence be if Canada did not open its doors to new immigration? Consequences would be pretty significant. I mean, uh, even before the pandemic, our research and other research was demonstrating the importance that immigrants played in our labor market and the importance that they were going to continue to play as retirements grew, uh, as you know, the reality of the labor market shifted over time. Uh, so even before the pandemic and, and even before uh, you know, the various changes in our labor market that have followed that, uh, the necessity of, of immigration in our labor market was very clear. Uh, but going forward, you know, with the pandemic, with increased retirements, uh, with the tightness in the labor market that we see now that's reaching historic levels, uh, without growth in immigration, we're simply not going to have the people that we need uh, to meet essential skill needs, uh, to meet skill needs within businesses up and down uh, you know, our sectors in all kinds of different skill levels, and our businesses won't be able to grow, which means our economy won't be able to grow. But half a million each year, it seems like a huge number. We're talking about the, almost the population of a Quebec City or of a Hamilton, Ontario, being admitted to this country each year by 2025. Can Canada really accommodate that number? We already have a housing crisis. Certainly. Uh, so. Um, obviously, it's a, it's a significant growth from numbers that we've even seen forecasted in recent years. Um, but we have to look on the other side, which is the number of people that are leaving the labor market through retirements. That number is also accelerating. You know, we saw the number of retirements decrease slightly and become somewhat repressed during the pandemic. Uh, but now we're going to see a spring effect where there's going to be even more retirements than were already forecasted. Uh, so, yes, it's significant growth, uh, but it's growth that has a relationship with the people that are leaving uh, the labor market through retirement. Um, in terms of the impact it's going to have on infrastructure and the sort of capacity of different Canadian communities to uh, take in significant number of immigrants, that's an important aspect of this plan. You know, what I would say is that uh, the growth in the plan is one necessary condition for us to meet our labor market needs. But from here, the government needs to kick on and continue to be innovative. And I should say governments, because the provincial governments have an important role to play here as well. They need to kick on and continue to innovate and find ways to integrate newcomers into a greater number of communities across Canada uh, to spread uh, the places that immigrants settle. And that's both so that uh, the infrastructure impacts, you know, whether to housing or to other, you know, essential health, transportation infrastructure is smoother. You know, it isn't as much of a shock to individual communities and it, you know, is spread out over a larger number of communities, but also so the communities across the country can realize the benefits of immigration because um, our labor market needs aren't just concentrated in our biggest cities. They're really spread all across the country in all kinds of communities. Mm -hmm. Now, there's also, interestingly, the, the shift in focus, more skilled workers, less family, less refugees. I would imagine there are those out there who like to think of this country as a refuge for others in less fortunate situations. What do you make of that shift? 
Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, by my calculation, the the sort of percentage of refugees that are going to come through the system, at least by the end of the current plan, uh, will be comparable. So uh, it is going to be, you know, a relatively you know similar approach uh, to refugees as we've had in recent years. But the number of family class is indeed decreasing. Um, but I think that's purely tied to what the government is focused on here, which is the economic need. Uh, the reason for the growth in immigration levels here is being driven not by uh, desire to increase our humanitarian objectives or, or desire to to reunite more families, it's being driven by the needs of the labor market. Um, down the road, you know, we may seek to, to find a different equilibrium again once some of the, uh, you know, economic and labor market conditions that we're facing have been addressed uh, through immigration. Um, but it's not a surprise that the government is focusing uh, so so uh, um, pointedly on on economic categories and is diversifying uh, the use of the economic categories that we have at both the federal and provincial level in order to meet a whole variety of different needs. At least that's what be, what's being signaled so far. Mm -hmm. uh, less than a minute, but I do need to ask, what skill sets in particular does this country need uh, to be looking for? really diverse and it's really complicated. Uh, it isn't just at the highest level, which is really where a lot of our immigration program is focused for decades now, you know, the most highly educated, those in professional occupations. We still need a lot of those people in professional services and other related occupations. We also need people in middle, uh, in, in, in sort of middle income uh, positions, such as in the trades and construction um, and in transportation. But then we also need people in food services, hospitality, lots of frontline work to say nothing of healthcare. So um, it's areas all across the economy which is why a diverse approach that includes uh, innovative programs in the provinces as well as tailored programs at the federal level are what's going to allow us to bring in people uh, that match all of these skill needs. What needs to follow from the federal government is continued devotion to settlement services and, and funding that will support immigrants as they settle in Canada and hopefully are economically successful. Ian Reeve, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it today. Well, many time. Take care. And that is our program for this evening. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. I'm Michael Serapia. We'll see you again tomorrow. Take care.